I am so glad that COVID is past, at least they tell me it is, because during COVID, I was pretty much stuck in Taiwan. I did a lot of ministry in Taiwan as well as over the internet to other countries. But now that COVID is over, I can resume the travel that I did before COVID. So this year, I've already been to Hong Kong and Singapore to churches that I have known for years there. They like to have me come and speak in person now. During COVID, I had to speak over the internet. But also, in Singapore, they still have me speak over the internet. One church has a Thursday evening prayer meeting, and I joined it this past week. But it was Thursday morning here. So I joined them. Uh, Often they have me speak, because it's online. All their people are online, even in Singapore. Their Sunday services are in person. Also, every morning in Taiwan, I'm part of a 6 a.m. Bible study and prayer time. And so last night here, I was part of Sunday morning's prayer time in Taiwan. So I'm very thankful that even though I'm here, I can still be part of things going on in Asia. Do pray for me. There are many uncertainties about the future in Asia. I've always said anything can happen in any country in East Asia. So please pray for me as I go back to Taiwan. I will leave this area on Thursday, and then next week I'll fly from San Francisco back to Taiwan. My main ministry is preaching in Bible studies, in churches, not often now in Bible colleges, but sometimes on a a, a one-time basis I teach in Bible colleges. I do a lot in Taiwan. I do a lot in Singapore especially. People have said, well, why don't you move to Singapore? Well, I asked a lawyer there about getting a visa for moving to Singapore, and she said, you'd need $2 million. Oh, okay, well, then I will stay in Taiwan, where I have a long-term visa. I have a a lifelong visa there now. And my landlord says, you can stay here till you die. So I stay there, and then Singapore invites me to fly to Singapore. I'm able to stay there a month or two or whatever, and then come back to Taiwan and continue my ministry in Taiwan. I've often considered, well, if I did move to Singapore, I would still go back to Taiwan to minister... So then I would keep my apartment in... Well, what really does it matter where I call my house or my home? I'm going back and forth, going other places. This year, for the first time, I was able to preach in Indonesia. A Singaporean got me lined up with a place in Indonesia. You see, there are six legal religions in Indonesia. You have to believe one of those six, and it's put on your ID card. But just because you put it on your ID card doesn't mean you're a believer, So there are a lot of people who say, I'm a Protestant. So in Indonesia, they gathered a lot of these Protestants together that really weren't believers, and they said, would you come and give the gospel to them? Well, that's what I do. So I went there, and the method that I used in Indonesia that day to over a 1,000 people, it was four different sessions, I'll be using this morning in the international class. So if you want to come and see what method I used, please come. Uh, I am thankful for that opportunity. I was in Manila earlier this year, and a Chinese pastor from Indonesia was there. Now, in Taiwan, we think of people who migrated from China in 1949. We think of people who migrated in the 1800s or the 1700s or in the 1600s. The people in Borneo, where this man is from, migrated from China a thousand years ago. Can you imagine? Are they immigrants? They've been there a thousand years. And so they're ethnic Chinese. They still speak some kinds of Chinese, not Mandarin. So I went there and spoke to them. 
And I love the response of the pastor's 11-year-old son. He said, when I grew up, I want to be just like Mark Lehman. I thought, wow, I got one person. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a good time speaking for them. Where they live in Borneo is hard to go to from Taiwan, because I don't live in the capital city. I'd have to go from my city to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong to Jakarta, from Jakarta back to Borneo. Well, that's a long trip, and that's a lot of money. So I said to him, can you work into my schedule? I'll be in Singapore later this month. So I went to Singapore. I was, I was teaching there. And then I took a one-hour ferry to an Indonesian island and then took a one-hour flight from there to Borneo. So it was fast, and it was very inexpensive, and it, it fit. Their schedule fit my schedule. It was very good. So do pray for me. There's a lot of logistics in my life. How do I go here? How do I go there? How do I get to this place? How do I fit in this Oh, these people want such and such. And you know, every church is different. Every church is different. Uh, I remember when I was in university, some people would tell me, well, you know how American churches are. And I'd say, how many churches have you been to in your life? One? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Every church is different. And that's true in America. Well, then you add the fact that I go to different countries. Uh, it, It... it takes, it takes some adjustment to go to different places. And I'm not always with people that I know well. So here I am. Who are you? Who am I? I have to get along with you for the next week. So pray for me as I am in these different situations, fitting into many different, different settings. This morning, I want to share with you something that I've, I've shared uh, in Singapore I'm always challenged when I come to America, how do I show you my ministry? My ministry is, well, sitting on airplanes and sitting on buses and sitting on trains as I go to places to teach, and then I get there to teach. Well, I can't even take a picture of myself. How how do I show you me teaching? Well, the easiest way for me to show you me teaching is for me to stand here and to teach you. Then you can see me teaching, right? You know what I do, and this is what I have shared In Singapore, you can go online, I can show you the link, you can see me saying the same thing. I like the chapter that Joseph read, chapter 39, because it's part of a very puzzling story, but that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm leading up to what I'm going to speak on. Have you ever been puzzled why in the Joseph story you have chapter 37 talking about Joseph, chapter 38 you talk about Judah, And then chapter 39 to the end, you talk about Joseph. And when I was a kid, what's that chapter doing there? And, you know, I went to college and they gave some explanation. It didn't stick. And so all my life I've wondered, what is this chapter 38 stuck in there for? And then several years ago, a friend of mine said, well, look at it this way. Abraham had how many sons that counted? One, right? And then Isaac had how many sons that counted? One. Okay, Jacob had 12 sons that counted, but it's really interesting. You read those chapters. I challenge you to read them. Go home and read them today. Chapter 37, yes, it's about Joseph. 38 is about Judah. And then you look from 39 to the end. Who talks? Who talks? Yes, Jacob says a little bit. Yes, Reuben says a little bit. But the two people that talk are Joseph and Judah. You come to the end of the book, chapter 49, and there are all these blessings on the children. And they're all short, except two. 
Are you going to guess? Joseph and Judah. And then you come to the Old Testament. You read through the whole Old Testament. And who, you, who do you talk about? You talk about Judah, right? They're separated. And who leads the other tribes? Ephraim. Who is Ephraim? One of the two sons of Joseph. I haven't even left the topic, right? Joseph got two portions. You know, he had two sons. He got two portions in the, in the um, inheritance. As a kid, I learned that there were 12 sons of Jacob. And then I sat in church. I was too young to understand what the preacher was saying. And so I looked at the maps and I thought, why aren't the names on the map the same as the ones that I learned were his 12 sons? Well, that's because Joseph got two portions, two portions. So who's, who's the, the, the firstborn? Who is the firstborn? Not Reuben. You, you can read this. You know, not Levi and Simeon. Is it Judah or is it Joseph? You're back to those two people. Well, Chronicle says it's Joseph. Well, you go back to that story. I don't want to get away from that story. It's really a dual spiral story about Joseph and Judah. Joseph and Judah. Read it again. So what I did as an as a exercise for myself... I wrote that story again from Judah's perspective. It's fascinating. I put my version on the internet. You can write your own. Go back and write the story from Judah's perspective. It just, it, it, oh, it's, 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 I don't know, it's exciting to me. But after I did that, I did what I'm going to share with you this morning. Because I was gripped in 1 John, it says, John says, our hands handled of the word of life. What does that mean? Our hands handled of the word of life. Okay, we know that he's talking about Jesus. He was Jesus' relative. Okay, he, he touched Jesus. Okay, well, I don't like to add things to the Bible. John 1.14, what does it say? And the word became flesh... That word's there in the Bible. I didn't put that in there. And we beheld his glory. So those two words are in the same verse. They're in the Bible. I didn't put them there. And I started thinking about those two ideas. Those two ideas. Flesh and glory. Flesh and glory. And I went to the Holy Land one time. And I got there. You know what's in the Holy Land? Dirt. I got off that plane. It's just dirt. We went on to the Sea of Galilee. This could be Sun Moon Lake in Taiwan. What is the difference? It's just dirt. So I look at John, on the one hand, as being the apostle of flesh. He was a relative of Jesus, according to the flesh. He ate with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, walked everywhere with Jesus. That's that's the flesh, right? Flesh, flesh. But John is the apostle of the revelation. He's the apostle of glory. But read the book book of John. Um, You start off with the book of John. Uh, You have this contrast, contrast. John, the Baptist, says, Behold the Lamb of God, right? That's the flesh. That means he's going to die. That's what you do with lambs. They're killed. He's going to die. But he's baptized 
And the Spirit comes down like a dove. There's the glory side. Still in chapter 1, one person calls him Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Okay, that's the flesh side. Same chapter, four verses later, calls him son of God, king of Israel. That's the glory side. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Why? Because the disciples have gone to buy food. That's the flesh side. What does he ask of her? Water. That's the flesh side, right? But what does she say? This man told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? And later it refers to him as the Savior of the world. That's the glory side. In chapter 6, some people say, Oh, isn't this the son of Joseph whose father, isn't he the guy whose father and mother we know? But then they ask, they ask, How can he say, I came down from heaven? So you have the flesh on one side, the glory on the other? At Lazarus' grave, Jesus wept. What do people say? See how he loved him. That's the flesh side. This is his friend. But what happens a few minutes later? Lazarus come forth. That's the glory. Now, this is not me putting this in there. I'm not... Remember in chapter 2, chapter 2, the first miracle, the wine at Cana? This is what, what the book of John says. This is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. I'm not adding this in there. He thus revealed his glory. Whoa, where'd that word come from? Read through the book of John, you'll see a lot of times it talks about the glory of Jesus. All he did was change water to wine. And who knew it? Who knew it? The, the, the feast leader didn't know. Hey, we need more wine. Okay, oh, okay, so servants, bring something. They brought something and, okay, it tastes good, let's keep going. He didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. The servants knew. Wait, we put water in there. But the guests didn't know. Why does the book of John say, this showed his glory? In Jesus' priestly prayer, he's ready to die the next day. He's in the garden. What does he say? Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. What happened the next day? Slapping, beating, and mocking, and spitting, and dying. And people abandoning him. No, but John is saying, no, glory. Glory, okay? Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I'm not putting this word in there. This is in the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, when Judas was gone, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. They're sitting at the Last Supper. But John is trying to emphasize this point. Glory, glory. So that's why I call John the apostle of flesh, the apostle of glory. So what I did, after I did the Judah story, I went back and I rewrote the story of Jesus, the story of the apostle John, and I want you to listen carefully for these two themes, flesh and glory. I'm John, fisherman's son from Galilee. 
I didn't have a lot of education growing up, just the standard Hebrew education in the synagogue, but we did pick up some Greek so we could get by with the Roman soldiers and other people living in Palestine. Remember, just across the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis, the people spoke Greek. Still, I may not sound as eloquent as some others might. I want to talk to you today about life. Not life as a fisherman or your lives here, but the truth of what life really is. You see, this life was from the beginning. This life appeared to me. I saw it. I heard it. In fact, these rough hands touched it. That's the life I want to tell you about. I want to tell everyone about it. Because this life was with God the Father himself, I believe if I tell you, you will have joy abounding. When we heard of another man named John preaching in the wilderness of Judea and baptizing the people who repented from their sin, we became his disciples. But the core of his teaching was always that someone would come after him that would be greater than he was, someone he didn't feel worthy enough even to untie the sandals of. You can know we looked forward very eagerly for the appearance of this man. One day, John said something that was different from anything he had preached before. He noticed a man from Galilee, from Nazareth, a town not too far from where we lived, and announced, look, here's the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Even though we didn't understand all that John the Baptist said about this man, that he surpassed John and was before John and was somehow the Son of God, the Lamb of God, we took note of this man and kept track of what he was doing. We heard that he had taught in the synagogue with such authority that everyone was amazed. If the teachers of the law were so unsure about the meaning of the Bible passages, how could this Nazarene, a carpenter from not too far away, in fact, be so confident about what it said? My friend, another fisherman named Peter, told me one day that his wife's mother had gotten sick with a high fever. This Nazarene, named Jesus, went to Peter's house and leaned over her and said only a few words, and then the fever was gone. Peter was especially happy that Jesus had healed her right away. Since it was the Sabbath, no other doctors would have come until the sun was set. The next time we saw Jesus, he had a whole crowd following him. He approached Peter, because he already knew him, and asked him to let him use his fishing boat so he could preach to the crowd. Since sound travels well over water and there was a natural rise to the land from the water's edge, it was better than a stone amphitheater. Peter was only too glad to lend him the boat since he'd been fishing all night but had caught nothing. Uh, Yes, I'm a businessman. I wondered whether Jesus would give Peter any money for the use of the boat, but he didn't. From where I was, his voice carried easily to me over the water when he said to Peter, "'Go out to the deep water and put down your nets.'" Peter protested that all of us had been fishing all night, but had caught nothing. Still, he did what Jesus asked. In no time, Peter was shouting for me and my brother James to come help. There were so many fish that the nets were breaking. We hurried over and took on as many fish as we could, but had to stop when we saw our ships were starting to sink from the weight of the fish. This was the greatest payment any fisherman has ever received for the temporary use of his boat. Jesus looked at each of us and said, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. I walked away from my boats and nets. So did James. 
We follow Jesus. And we, well, my brother James died quite a while ago. I still follow him, and I always will. May I tell you about this man? I listened to him preach for hours, often telling parables that referred to simple things in our lives, sheep, a net, a coin, often telling us stories that were outside of our experience, a pearl of great price, a rich lord going away on a journey, a thirsty man in Hades. I thought I didn't understand his teaching because I'm uneducated. But the other men, like Peter, James, and others that joined our group later on, didn't understand either. Very often after teaching the crowds, Jesus would take the time to sit down and explain his stories to us. I listened to him more than three years and learned to love his voice. I yearn even today to hear it again. I would love that voice even if it rebuked me. Jesus puzzled us when he heard that his dear friend Lazarus was sick, but he didn't go immediately to heal him. He had healed all sorts of people quickly and without any effort, but he purposely waited for days before going to Bethany. The sisters of Lazarus were mourning his death, but Jesus spoke to them gruffly. Your brother will rise again. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He seemed doctrinaire and unfeeling. But then I remember his commanding shout. Lazarus, come out. You should have seen the eyes of the Pharisees bug out of their heads. You should have heard the cries of Mary and Martha, overjoyed to be with their brother again. I remember the way he rebuked us when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We were tired from a busy week and had just had a large meal at Passover time. It was very late at night and Jesus wanted to pray. Peter and James and I wanted to sleep. Jesus asked us to pray with him. And if I could do it over, I would pray with him. But while he prayed, we slept. He came twice to wake us and rebuked us for not staying awake with him. Only later, when the soldiers came to arrest him, could we see by the light of their torches that Jesus was really worked up and worn out. I wish I could have been with him to encourage him at this crisis point of his life. I remember that night in the storm on the Sea of Galilee when we saw what looked like a ghost walking on the water. I'm ashamed to admit that we were all terrified. But Peter was brave and shouted, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. I can still remember the single word he shouted above the waves and through the roaring wind. Come. As I stand here, I can remember the smells I associated with him. Because the twelve of us often slept together with him, I can remember waking in a room with the smell of thirteen men hanging in the air. I can remember waking out of doors and smelling the morning freshness through the dust of the ground we had slept on. I remember greeting him with a kiss and tasting on his lips the wine he had just drunk and smelling the warm, dank odor of his sweat. There was the time that we passed by a man who had been born blind. Jesus explained that the blindness was not because of the parent's sin or the man's sin. He was blind so God could show his works in the man's life. What works? Jesus spat on the ground and then formed the wet earth into something that he put in the blind man's eyes. Oddly, he told the man to go to the pool of Siloam. Later, we saw that that man could see clearly. 
Many a time as we traveled, Jesus gripped my arm or laid his hand on my shoulder or embraced me. When we sat in a boat, his body jostled against my own. When we reclined at a meal, he might sit behind me so I could lean back against him to make a private comment. I remember the last meal we ate together before his death. He took a towel and a basin and went to each of us, his disciples, and washed our feet. I should have been washing his feet. He shouldn't have washed mine. I remember walking on one of our many trips between Galilee and Jerusalem. I don't remember which direction we were going, but I reached out to touch his arm to catch his attention, and my hand slipped on his sweaty skin. I glanced over and saw that a small crumb of bread was caught in his beard, but when he turned toward me, the wind blew, and as the beard waved in the breeze, the crumb flew away. I looked straight into his eyes. His look made me feel very loved, loved more by him than by anyone else I knew. Another time we were at someone's house to eat, I forget whose, and as usual we sat down so that a servant could come wash the dust off our feet. I was seated beside him that day and noticed the servant unbind Jesus' sandals and place his foot in the basin of water. I noticed that the clear water turned dark from the dust, but the skin turned darker too now that the dust was washed off. With the gray dust off, the black hair on his legs accented his skin color. May I tell you something else about my friend? He was the closest of all my friends. Yes, he was my teacher, and more than a teacher. He was someone I considered my Lord. I did whatever he told me to, because he deserved that authority over me. But he was also the person I considered to be my loving friend, the best friend I've ever had. I remember the shock, the pain I felt when he was arrested that night in the garden. What could the three of us with him do when armed men came with some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees? Jesus had said that he knew something important, so important that it was going to fulfill Scripture, was going to happen. And he asked how many weapons we had. Among us, we had two swords. And he said that was enough. When the soldiers came, should we have defended him with those two swords? Peter drew his and ended up chopping off the ear of the high priest's servant, but that didn't do any good. Jesus even reached down and picked up the bloody ear and put it back on the servant's head. It didn't seem to make any sense. Peter and I followed the soldiers as they took Jesus to the house of the high priest. The girl at the door wouldn't let Peter into the courtyard, but because I had connections there, she let me in. I took a look first to see what was happening, and then I went back and said a few words to the girl at the door, and she let Peter in. Do you know what it is like to watch the person you love most suffer painful, shameful, unfair, inhuman treatment? I watched the high priest question Jesus. One of the officials reached over and slapped Jesus for one of his answers. Then they took Jesus to see Caiaphas, and then to see Pontius Pilate, and then to see Herod. Pilate had Jesus flogged, and the soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head, and then Pilate condemned Jesus to be crucified. That was a very long walk to Golgotha. Some women that followed Jesus walked along the way, and I followed too. I stood at the foot of Jesus' cross and watched him hang there in agony 
the nails in his hands and feet, the blood coming down his face from the wounds and from the crown of thorns on his head. He writhed and gasped even to breathe. What could we do when our own Jewish leaders had teamed up with the hated Romans to put to death one of our own community who had broken no law? The man who had preached authoritatively for hours now gasped short bursts of words. Woman, here is your son, he said to Mary. To me, he said, here is your mother. I knew he was putting her into my care. Of course, I would do anything for him. And then I watched the man I loved most in the world die. Have you watched one of your friends die? His breathing stopped. His body slumped down. His head dangled awkwardly over his chest. It was the most offensively distasteful scene imaginable. From very young... I've heard Moses read in the synagogues. We read through the whole Torah, the law, every year. I would watch as a boy as the men would turn the scroll slowly throughout the year. I remember what some might call the high point of the whole Torah. Moses was on Sinai, and he was receiving the law from God, and he said to God, show me your glory. God said Moses wouldn't be able to see and live. So God put Moses in the crevice of a rock, and God put his hand over the rock and then passed by so Moses could see only his back. What a change in Moses. When he came down from the mountain, Moses' face shone so brightly the people had to cover it with a veil. Show me your glory, the high point in Moses' life. God said that he didn't use dreams and visions with Moses, the way he spoke to other prophets. With Moses, he spoke face to face. And Moses saw God's glory. I remember one day, Jesus took Peter, James, and me with him, and we hiked up a rather high mountain. At the top, something happened that caught the three of us by surprise. Jesus' body changed. His face shone brightly. Even his clothes turned completely white, whiter than I've ever seen any clothes before. A booming voice came from heaven declaring, This is my son whom I love. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. Yes, we believed already that Jesus is the son of God. Peter had already confessed to him that he knew Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Andrew had recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Christ, even before he introduced Peter, my friend, to Jesus. Philip had recognized Jesus as the coming one promised by Moses and the prophets and told Nathanael, and Nathanael right away declared that Jesus is the Son of God. But that day on the mountain, we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten, the one and only from the Father. Immediately, we noticed two men standing with Jesus. One was Moses, the other was Elijah. With complete clarity, we saw from the presence of these two men that Jesus was the Christ that Moses and the prophets had foretold for centuries. Every Sabbath in the synagogue, we had heard Messiah prophesied. Now we could see with our own eyes that Moses and Elijah were affirming and confirming that Jesus was the one they had been talking about. And we saw Jesus in glory. The next thing we knew, we felt Jesus touching us to wake us. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Only Jesus was there. Moses and Elijah were gone. 
Jesus' face and clothes were back to normal? Had I only dreamt the glorious events that were still a clear memory in my mind? No, I hadn't. Because Jesus said, don't talk about these things until I've risen from the dead. I understood the first part of that sentence. Jesus didn't want us to tell others what happened. But I couldn't understand what Jesus meant about rising from the dead. But later I did. After Jesus died, I didn't know what to do. I ended up being with Peter, my old friend, and talked with him about what he had seen and done. Peter the rash, John the son of thunder, we were now two helpless men emasculated by the key leaders of our society. On Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came running to see Peter and me. She was all excited about something and said many things that didn't add up or make any sense. We could only figure out that she was saying someone had stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb. Couldn't they leave him alone in his death? The Jewish leaders had bullied Jesus for three years while he had taught what Moses had taught. Then they framed him and put him to death in a horrible way. Now they had to drag his corpse away somewhere. Peter and I felt some of our old energy, and we ran to the tomb. Sure enough, the soldiers were lying at the side of the tomb. The stone was rolled back. I couldn't go in, but stayed at the doorway. Peter caught up with me and then hurried in. When I walked in afterwards, I saw strips of linen there, and I saw the cloth that had bound Jesus' head folded up at the side. No one stealing a body would leave things this way. Jesus had to be risen. Jesus was alive. Remember, he had raised Jairus' daughter. Only Peter, James, and I had seen it. He had raised uh, that son of that widow in name. He had raised Lazarus. Of course he could rise again too. How happy I was for the next 40 days. Jesus appeared to us from time to time in a locked room by the Sea of Galilee on the sides of a mountain. I was thrilled to hear his familiar voice, to see his face, to grip his body, and to talk to him. Suddenly, one day, without any forewarning, he, he rose up to heaven again. And we were told he would come again. We waited for many years, many decades, without seeing him. But I saw him again, not long ago. Here, on the island of Patmos, in the westernmost part of Asia, on one Sunday, I suddenly heard a commanding voice, write down what you hear. I turned around and saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of them, I saw Jesus. He he was glorious. How how do I express it? A a long robe, a golden belt, hair a brilliant white, eyes blazing like fire, a booming voice, a shining face, seven stars in his hand, a sword coming from his mouth. With joy, with fear, in full worship, I fell at his glowing feet. Then I felt him touch my shoulder as he had done on the mountain long ago. Don't be afraid. I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. I have authority over death and Hades. I obeyed. And then he showed me more of his glory. He took me up to heaven and I saw wonderful living creatures and 24 elders praising the Most High. 
They watched as Jesus walked out and took the scroll that no one else had the authority to open, and he ripped open each seal. He looked like a a lamb, one that had been killed. And it reminded me of what the other John, the one who baptized so many people, had called him, the Lamb of God. And then the wonderful living creatures and the 24 elders bowed down before Jesus and praised him, saying, you are worthy. You bought mankind with your blood. You made them to be royal priests. And then the angels, literally millions of them, chorused in a thundering voice proclaiming, you are worthy. You died. Now you are worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. And then everyone, everything that God created, joined in with the angels and sang together praise and honor and glory and power to the Most High and to Jesus the Lamb. And then there gathered a crowd of people, more than anyone could count, from every country, every ethnic group, every language, and they shouted together, salvation is God's and the Lamb's. And afterward, I heard what resembled loud peals of thunder announcing, the Lamb's wedding, the bride is ready. And then I saw the groom, Jesus, whose eyes blazed like fire under a forehead ringed with many crowns, riding on a white horse and wielding from his mouth a victorious sharp sword to destroy his enemies. His white robe was emblazoned with King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then a great white throne, exalted and ominous, and Jesus seated there to judge all that had died. And then a glimpse of heaven, a glorious place that had no temple, but there wasn't a need for the temple. The lamb was the temple. And then the vision was over. And I was back here on Patmos in Asia. But the memory stays with me. I know that my time here on earth isn't long anymore. But when I leave here, I will see Jesus again as I saw him in the vision. And I can't wait to see him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are more glorious than we can see. You're more glorious than we can describe. You're more glorious than we can imagine. But you have chosen to display your glory in all that you've created. But even beyond that, Jesus has come and displayed your glory by who he was, by what he said and did. We're amazed at your glory, but we're also amazed that you chose for Jesus to come as a person in the flesh. His disciples touched him. His disciples heard him. His disciples saw him. Thank you for the Apostle John and his bringing these two themes together. We pray that you would let us, in our lives, live out your glory. Show other people who Christ is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.